Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Good afternoon. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. This is a public affair. I'm your host, Ali Maldro, and today we are so grateful to be joined by Marissa Dukowski. Ditkowski, I'm so sorry, who is a staff attorney based in Washington, D.C., who works with low-income D.C. residents with disabilities facing debt. She is also a member of the Disability Rights Bar Association and an outgoing leader of the National Disabled Law Student Association. Welcome to the show, Marissa. We are also talking to, and I'm, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm going to butcher your name and you've taught me how to say it like seven or eight times now, but my Anna... Uh, uh, Anan uh, Nat- Nati, who is the senior counselor for the health and equity and health equity and justice at the National Women's Law Center, they are the author of a new report about forced sterilization of disabled people in the United States. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Um, yeah. I'm going to start with with you, Maya, Maya Anan, um, in part so that you can correct me in terms of how I'm saying your name, and also just to ask you, like, how are you doing? Welcome to WRT. Thanks for joining us. Um, hi. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and it's Maayan Anafi, so close, but um, uh, and and I'm I'm doing okay. I'm happy to be here. Marissa, how are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm doing fine, thank you. Thanks so much for having me today. So I want to jump right into the conversation. We've been spending the entire month of August talking about uh, reproductive rights and, and you know, the, the reality of, of what it means for folks occupying different identities and realities um, as, as we navigate a world post Roe v. Wade. Um, Marissa, I'll start with you. What has kind of the, the recent shift in terms of, you know, the, the legal expectations around reproductive rights. What has that meant for you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I think a lot of the shift has been, you know, the guaranteed constitutional rights that folks had are are now gone. Um, And so um, people might now have to travel long distances if they even can or are capable of doing so. that those guaranteed rights that folks once had um, are, are no longer. Um, obviously, it's very state dependent. Um, so where you live is really going to affect um, whether your rights are set in stone. Um, and that is the right um, to have an abortion or to not, the right to make decisions about your body. Um, and the concern Um, is whether that will sort of cause um, more more rights to be um, affected. Um, And I think um, it's a very legitimate concern. Um, We have concerns about um, same-sex marriage. 
um, we have concerns um, that are also based in similar case law, um, you know, uh, to um, Roe, Roe v. Wade, um, under the 14th Amendment um, that are on very, very thin ice right now. Um, and I think we were sort of <laughs> told that um, it was a bit ridiculous to be concerned about that before, but I think now um, that that um, is not so anymore. Um, and for disabled folks specifically, um, losing Roe does disproportionately, disproportionately affect disabled folks, uh, particularly multi-marginalized disabled folks, um, you know, um, uh, disabled folks of color, um, poor disabled folks, et cetera. Um, disabled folks uh, often have increased concerns about safety um, for, for pregnant disabled folks who might have conditions that make carrying a child more dangerous or onerous. Um, there also is an increased likelihood of sexual abuse and gender-based violence. Um, and many disabled people, pregnant people, were already um, restricted by the Hyde Amendment um, due to their reliance on Medicaid. Um, so there's a lot going on here, um, and we can talk about more of it um, as this uh, uh, show continues. Um, oh, thank- but that's sort of the lay of the land. Thank you so much, though, for for starting us there. And it's been amazing to me as we've had these conversations with different people over the last few weeks, how there's always new factors and new information. So you're the first person to kind of speak to the Hyde Amendment um, and how that specifically and disproportionately impacts uh, dis- disabled folks who are relying on, you know, on the state for health care. Um, so thank you so much, Marissa, for being here. And thank you for, for the information you just you just shared with us. Maya Nan, I, I want to ask you, as the senior counsel for the health equity and justice at the National Women's Law Center, what what has your work, you know, how has how has your work been impacted and what have you what has your response been um, within that role to the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Um, thanks so much. So um um, I think um, we've um, really seen uh, this um, huge impact on disabled people in particular, um, as, as Marissa mentioned. So um, disabled people who can get pregnant already face um, all sorts of barriers to getting abortion, whether it's, you know, inaccessible um, uh, settings or discrimination and bias in healthcare or the extreme levels of poverty that so many disabled people um, face. And um, that is going to um, make... Um, some of these laws that are coming down that uh, that are restricting access to abortion that that's going to hit um, disabled people especially hard. Um, so um, we are um, seeing, um, I think, a, a lot of states, you know, taking advantage of the Supreme Court decision and pushing forward really, really quickly all of these um, bans on abortion and and um, laws that are making abortion way harder to access. Um, and, and that's having an impact on um, not just uh, not just abortion, but all sorts of aspects of health care um, that disabled people need. And you write specifically about forced sterilization of disabled people. Um, and so I think, you know, I think folks kind of think of that as the opposite end of the, the spectrum in terms of, you know, we're both talking about the right to terminate a pregnancy. We're also talking about the right to have children and care for children and start a family on your own terms. In your work around the forced sterilization of disabled people, uh, you know, how, how, how has that conversation informed kind of the work you're doing right now? 
Um, so all of these conversations are, are all sort of tied together with the same thread. Um, it's all about making sure that people have the right to make decisions about their bodies and their futures and their families. Um, it's all about making sure that people have autonomy um, over their bodies. Um, and so um, we're seeing um, with disabled people in particular, like myself, um, we're, we're seeing um, that um, our uh, ability to make decisions about our bodies are being attacked from all sorts of directions. So whether that's through lack of access to abortion and lack of access to birth control, to even things like um, being forced to be sterilized or being forced to use um, birth control that we don't want. Um, in my role at the National Women's Law Center, we released a report um, with support from the um, Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network, where we studied laws about for sterilization of disabled people. And what we found was that 31 states plus Washington, D.C. have these laws in place. And these laws aren't relics from the past. They're not laws that were passed 100 years ago. Some laws were, were passed as recently as 2019. And these laws say that a judge can order a disabled person to be sterilized against their will, supposedly for their own good. And that's really grounded in that assumption that disabled people like me can't or shouldn't make decisions about our bodies, that other people need to make those decisions for us. And we know that assumption is wrong. It's dangerous. And it's been used for years to justify the reproductive coercion of disabled people in various ways. I think there are probably people out there who are listening who, who go, wait, that isn't for disabled people like you, right? Like there is an ableist perception that there are some people with disabilities who can, you know, are, are considered high functioning, can participate in the, the workforce and in, you know, education in specific ways. And then there are folks who um, I think it goes along with the same kind of sexist or racist rhetoric um, in terms of ableist rhetoric that says these people need uh, need to be infantilized for their own good, right? For their own safety, for their own well-being. They are not equipped to make decisions about their own health, their own bodies. Um, how how do you navigate that dialogue? And I want to ask both you and Marissa this question. Uh, you know, how do you navigate the real needs for support that many disabled communities have to navigate with uh, the right the right to autonomy? I think, oh, sorry, uh, this is Marissa. I think a lot of people don't recognize that um, there really isn't this um, dichotomy um, in the disabled community of, oh, this one can handle their decisions, this one can't. Um, that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of paternalism out there. Um, and we see cases uh, with guardianship um, where people um, have guardianships granted over them um, when those people are very capable of making their own decisions. Um, cases with very severe due process violations where the judge hasn't even so much as spoken to the individual who is disabled. Um, and, and a guardianship is granted in that case. Um, these are overly restrictive um, and they are granted far too often when it is not necessary. Um, and so I think people um, really just um, don't always understand that. Um, and I do think that, um, you know, the situation with Britney Spears did shed um, a light on that. Um, people were seeing, you know, Britney Spears. Um, she's this person who can clearly make her own decisions. Um, she's out there. She's working. She's, um, you know, doing all of these things by herself. 
how is it that someone can control all of her decisions, all of her money? Um, and that's because we do have this strong paternalism um, within our society um, where these things just are not checked to the extent that they need to be. Um, and the other thing about decisions over bodies is it's also based um, in this assumption that disabled people are both um, not sexual beings, but also mm. hypersexualized. Um, and so there's this sort of conflicting um, perception of disabled people um, that we are just not capable of, um, of um, you know, sort of taking care of ourselves and being able to assert ourselves in those ways. Um, and that also sort of uh, bleeds over into decisions about having children, bearing children, or not having children. Mm. Um, and so it's sort of all related. Thank you so much for speaking that to that, Marissa. Maya Anafi, I want to ask you the same question. You know, how how do you balance the the support that folks really need with this this idea that folks also need autonomy and choice and and self determination? And when we're talking about disability, we're talking about a wide range of people. There is a lot of diversity within the, the disabled community. Um, and so how do you balance that in terms of what is right for, for one member of the community is not necessarily the same as what is right for, for another member navigating a different set of, you know, medical needs or, or you know, specific cognitive capacities like how do you how do you kind of have have that conversation with folks i think we all um everyone disabled and non-disabled needs um, a variety of supports in their life and some disabled people need specific supports um, i as an autistic person um use a lot of specific supports in my life that help me um you know participate in the workforce and and sort of stuff um, all, all of that um and um that includes um, supports that we might need when we make decisions about abortion and birth control and sterilization and all sorts of um, re things related to our health and our reproductive rights. So some of us might need particular support to make decisions, for example, about sterilization. But all that means is that we should make that decision with support. We should be we we, um, we should be uh, guaranteed to have that support that we need. It doesn't mean that we should lose the fundamental right and. Um, under the laws that I spoke about, when someone is sterilized, the justification that's generally used is, is that it's somehow, you know, it's for their own good, that that it's this idea that forced sterilization is somehow benevolent, that the courts are protecting people from the burdens of getting pregnant or having a child, because how could they possibly, um, you know, um, have the capacity to raise a child? And that's really based on this assumption that disabled people need to be protected from themselves, from their own decisions, um, and that it's in their best interest for the courts to take their rights away. And that's sort of part of what this, what makes these laws and the paternalism that Marissa was talking about as well, especially dangerous. It's, it's sort of this kind of paternalism that's been used to take away disabled people's most basic rights across the board. Oh, thank you so much for speaking to that. And I, I want to say, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we're talking about the intersection of reproductive justice and disability justice with my Anon Anafi and Marissa De, De, I'm sorry, De, Dekowski. I'm going to really struggle with your names today. I'm like, uh, you know, 
I'm working through my Tuesday, y'all. Um, if you want to join the conversation with a question or comment, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to hear from you. So please let us know what you think, what you're wondering about. Um, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'll patch you through to the show. I, I want to ask because... I, I don't think that because there is so much diversity in the disabled community, I don't want to pretend that the dis, the disabled community is just pro-choice. Um, there There is a pro-life movement within the disabled community, and there is folks who argue that disabled folks are targeted through abortion, um, particularly folks in the Down syndrome community have, have spoken about this a lot, that they, that they experience discrimination before they're born um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the idea that if a, a baby is going to have Down syndrome and that is detected early in pregnancy, um, that termination is often termination of that preg- pregnancy is often recommended as as an option to be explored. Marissa, I'm going to ask you first, how do you have that that conversation kind of how do you hold space for for folks in the dis- disability community who feel like uh, abortion um, has an adverse impact on on the way folks see them or positions them as disposable or less than desirable? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It It is a complicated um, discussion to have, particularly when disabled people all have different experiences. Even people with the same disability um, will have different experiences. Um, and so I think it's just a difference between what the law should be and what your own personal morals should be. Um, And so when you have a law that is so um, restrictive um, that it does put disabled people in danger, Um, disabled folks who might have to have an abortion or who might have to, um, you know, it might put them in danger um, if they are not able to do so. you know, you have that conflict um, with um, disabled folks who say, you know, well, this gives people the option if, you know, they're going to have potentially a child um, who is disabled, um, they may seek to have an abortion. Um, And obviously, I would not agree with that choice. Um, But that doesn't mean that I would decide to not be pro-choice, to not give people, um, you know, in terms of legally speaking, um, the right to make choices about their own bodies. It would be a difference of morals, however, and it's hard to draw a line, morally speaking, when you have those types of laws. And I do understand where they're coming from, and I hear that, and I see that. Um, I do also see where, you know, doctors do make those sort of comments to parents. And it does happen all the time where doctors will try to influence the decisions of prospective parents. And it does also happen um, with um, disabled parents who want to have children and might need um you know, assisted, assistive technology or something like that to reproduce. Hmm. Um, they might need, you know, some something to help them 
and a doctor will decide they don't want to help because the parent um, is disabled. Um, and so there are really these eugenic tendencies that come from doctors as well. And I do think that those conversations need to happen um, within um, the healthcare profession as well. And so I, it is a really hard conversation to navigate, but that's what I would say. Well, I think we're leaning in the into the complexity here today on WORT 89.9 FM. Thank you both for, for joining me on A Public Affair. Maya An- Anan, I want to ask, um, do you have, you know, do, do you kind of feel like the 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 disability community is uniquely positioned to both participate in a pro-life conversation and a pro, pro-choice conversation um, because of the unique experiences of, of folks who, you know, have a wide range of disabilities and make up that community. Um, absolutely. And sort of picking up on some of the things that Marissa was saying, um, I think there's a lot of work to be done to combat misinformation um, about um, what having a disabled child is like. Um, there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that disabled children and disabled people of all ages have resources they need to thrive, that their families have the resources and, and the financial support and all the things that they need. Um, but fundamentally, uh, attacks on abortion, laws that make abortion harder to access are attacks on disabled women and on any disabled person who can get pregnant. Um, We talked about the the barriers that disabled people face to um, uh, face when having abortions. And with these laws um, that uh, that, that focus in on the potential diagnosis of the fetus, that's going to be even harder because if you have a disability that's genetic or even a disability that's perceived to be genetic, then you're going to get a lot of scrutiny if you're trying to get an abortion in states that might pass these laws. So these laws are these are laws that actually hurt disabled people. And the reality is that in these um, it, that, that these kinds of laws, they're, they're part of a long history in this country of sweeping in to supposedly save disabled people without listening to what we actually want, without respecting our priorities and our autonomy. It's part of a long history of taking away rights from disabled people in the name of protecting us. And I think it's particularly telling that so many of the lawmakers who support these anti-abortion laws will then turn around and push for policies that take away disabled people's rights and undermine our autonomy and even endanger our lives. Um, they're, they're not champions of disability justice if they stop caring about disabled people once we're out of the womb. And we're not props that they can use to further their anti-abortion agenda. Okay, say that. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you for, for giving us that that moment on the air. And also, I just have to say, I think so much of what you're talking about also speaks to a lack of res- representation when you're when you're talking about who gets elected in our community. And so who who can folks within the disability community look to to really represent their their interests in terms of, you know, what is what is organizing look like for for folks um, in terms of getting in get, getting disabled folks elected, getting disabled folks in positions of power um, so that there is representation, that we are listening to folks, that we're not projecting um, this this image of folks as helpless onto our, our disabled siblings, but are uplifting the voices and supporting folks um, in representing their own needs and their own interest. This is Marissa. I think that's also a... Um, complicated (laughs) uh, question because even when you do have disabled folks, like we sort of talked about before, um, that does not always mean 
um, that those are disabled folks representing um, the wide range of perspectives from the community um, or, you know, um, anything like that. For example, we have, you know, Madison Cawthorn, um, who, you know, I would say does not necessarily represent all of the wide ranges of perspectives. I forgot about um, him. <laughs> I, I, let, I, I let him go for a second, y'all. I Yes, talk, let's talk about it. <laughs> In the disabled community. So, um, you know, it's really hard um, as a disabled person um, to do all of the things that you need to do to run for office. It is hard, man. Like, um, you know, campaigning is draining. Um, it is draining. Um, and a lot of folks who are on Social Security, for example, might lose those benefits just as a matter of course when they try to run for office and get that office once mm. you get that office. And so there are barriers that are just in the way of disabled folks trying to run for office and be in those positions of power, um, just like keeping us down. Um, and so I think there's a lot of energy to try to get this happening. I know, for example, Sarah Blahovec had a, um, a, a project on this um, and worked really, really hard trying to get this going. Um, but, but there's a lot of energy um, to try to get disabled people to run. Thank you so much for speaking to that. And I really appreciate earlier in the conversation when you talked about kind of the conservative ship around Britney Spears um, and and kind of the abuse of power that folks became aware of through through that. Um, looking at kind of the, the conversation around forced sterilization, I think so many people would think of that as, um, you know, a relic of the past, as something that we we really don't need to think about today um, and, and isn't practiced. And I think oftentimes people don't understand the the level of control um, folks, you know, don't have over their lives when they need specific kinds of support. Mayanan, I'm going to ask you to speak to a little bit of kind of the reality of forced sterilization right now um, and what it looks like for, for disability, for folks who have disabilities, who have maybe a team of people around them making those kinds of medical decisions for them. Sure. And so the story that we're told about forced sterilization, um, if we're told the story at all, is that it's something that was confined to this dark period in history. Um, but the reality is, as, as we were talking about earlier, that these laws exist throughout the country in 31 states plus D.C. right now. Um, and um, and um, these laws were passed, as I mentioned, I think, as recently as 2019. So we're talking about very recent laws um, and, and a conversation that's currently ongoing. Um, I think that many people um, were really surprised um, when um, and we were really shocked when when they heard about um, uh, Britney Spears not being able to remove her IUD when she was under a conservatorship. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that um, up. Yeah, and um, that's actually a lot more common than, than people realize. There's one estimate says that something like 1.3 million people are under guardianship or conservatorship. That's a system where someone else is appointed by courts to make decisions on your behalf. And that's almost certainly an undercount. Um, but regardless, the system is massively overused and abused. Uh, many people are funneled into guardianship just as a matter of course. Um, I think Marissa talked about it a little earlier, you know, with, with very little um, procedural oversight 
um, just based on this assumption that they can't make decisions in their life in their life when in reality there are many alternatives to guardianship that preserve people's autonomy and their basic rights and guardians are often given these sweeping powers over people's lives you know disabled people often lose some of their most basic rights when they're placed under guardianship um, and that can include everything from the rights to get married and vote and see their children to where they live and who they associate with and how to spend their money and they can lose the rights to make decisions about what health care they get um, and that includes uh, reproductive care like birth control and abortion and includes permanent sterilization as well and I think if Britney Spears who is white and wealthy and famous if she wasn't able to control, claim control over her body in this situation, that just gives us a hint of what people who don't have those privileges may have to go through under guardianship. So it's a system that needs urgent overhaul. I also think that Britney Spears demonstrates the potency of sexism um, because it's very hard for me to think of a, a male celebrity who may have had an outburst or had a, a moment of, of breakdown in terms of mental health and therefore long term lost all their their rights to make decisions about themselves. I also think that we have a culture that sees certain folks as a burden. Um, and and so when you say, you know, you're you're given these sweeping powers, I think a lot of times the way that that is framed is you are responsible for this person um, and and that this person needs your help. You're responsible for them. And therefore, you have to have this decision making power. Um, Marissa, can you can you you talk a little bit about you know what the alternative is to to conservative ship if you if you have somebody who needs you know significant support significant assistance what are what are the the less i guess invasive the less entitled ways in which you get somebody that support or that support system or team or network yeah of course this is marissa so there are a couple of different types of alternatives um and sort of going down the list, um, there's power of attorney, um, where someone um, makes the decision themselves um, to um, give someone a specific power um, um, or give someone specific um, duties or decision-making authority um, in their life. And they can choose what that is, if that is, and to whom. And you are able to revoke that at any time. Um, and so that is another, one option. There's also supported decision-making, um, which is a framework that um, has now been introduced in a couple of different states um, that is basically um, an agreement where you have a bunch of supporters um, who are just on your side and you can go to them anytime you want um, to consult them about different decisions that you have, um, that you have to make um, and they will help you make those decisions. They will support you in making those decisions. Um, another option that is really underused um, is limited guardianships. Now, a lot of what we're seeing right now is plenary or just sort of uh, full guardianships where a guardian just has full control over whatever decision. Um, but there are also limited guardianships where a guardian only has decisions, uh, a decision-making power over certain areas where maybe you don't have capacity. Um, those are very underused. Um, obviously, again, that is still very limited, limiting and you're losing decision-making power, 
So it really should only be used when you cannot and are not capable of making decisions in those areas, um, but that is still underused. Um, those are some of um, the options um, that are available um, in that. If you're just joining us, you're just sitting down for lunch, you're just jumping into your car, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldero. This is a public affair. And today we are talking about the intersection of reproductive justice and disability justice with Mayanan Anafi and Marissa Dikowski. Um, if you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. The number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. Huge shout out to our team today, producer Rochelle, engineer Rory, and news director Shali Pittman, who is moving. Um, and we're wishing her so much, so much luck in her new location. And also, you know, it's just, it's stressful to move. So send send Shali some, like, good energy. Um you know, as as we move through this conversation, I also want to give a shout out to Cooper, who's out there listening and is in support of the conversation we're having. I think it's it's hard not to think, oh, but we've come so far when it comes to disability. Um, I think so often we want to have these moments where, you know, we've come so far when it comes to gender justice. We've so, come so far when it comes to equality and inclusion of the LGBTQ community. When I was 18 to 19, I worked in a state-run institution that still exists, Central Wisconsin Center, for folks who were severely disabled. Um, but that institution had been used at times um, for, you know, kind of anybody who had any disability could could be institutionalized as we've moved away from that and incorporated the the folks with disabilities into our schools, into our neighborhoods, into our jobs to a greater extent. Um, I think folks wonder, you know, how how far do we need to go? How how far are we from a, a space of inclusion or a space of empowering, you know, folks with disabilities around reproduction specifically? Um, and so I, I think the question is kind of, what are you what are you fighting for if you if you know hey we're we're against overturning roe v wade because what we want is autonomy what we want is choice what we want is support in making our own decisions um how do how do we get there and i guess i'll start with you mayanan sure um so i think that we've yes that um things have definitely changed from um um many years ago but um, I think when, when you look at the way that people currently talk about disabled people and something like forced sterilization, when you look at the way that judges and guardians are talking about it, then you see a lot of the echoes of um, the, the kind of rhetoric that we would see in the eugenics era. So, um, so as you know, as much as things uh, change, them, as much as they stay the same, not, not sure if that's the right uh, way to uh, that's the that's the way the phrase goes, but um, you know what I mean. Um, I do. So, <laughs> um, so I think um, we still have a, a long way to go to uh, make sure that, for example, people have the right supports um, they they need to not be in, in those kinds of institutional settings that that you mentioned that people are able to um, thrive and live in their homes and, and in community settings and be integrated in the community, um, and um, that's a really critical component of making um, that that's connected to making sure that people are able to make their decisions about 
their basic aspects of their life, including their reproductive freedoms. Thank you so much for speaking to that. Marissa, you brought up something earlier that I don't want to get away from within this conversation. So much earlier in the conversation, you said disabled folks are uniquely positioned um, to be victims of sexual assault and sexual violence. Um, I think back to when I worked at Central Wisconsin Center, it was right after uh, a resident had miscarried after being um, sexually assaulted for years by a member of the staff there. Can can you talk a little bit about, you know, why why abortion? Um, you know, when we talk about like in the case of rape and incense, I think folks think like that's a really rare thing. What we know now after the Me Too movement is that rape and sexual assault are really prevalent in our community and they are even more prevalent um, amongst communities that are multiply marginalized or disadvantaged, you know, in terms of their their political reality, their social socioeconomic reality. So often folks um, with disabilities sit at the intersection of a, a variety of marginalized identities. How, how does the conversation about sexual violence and sexual assault um, and the, the increased likelihood that folks with disabilities will be victims of sexual violence or sexual assault change the way you have the conversation about reproductive justice? Yeah, this is Marissa. That's a great question. Um, I, I think you know, in the ways that we talk about it, um, like you said, people will assume, well, you know, that's the severe case. You know, people should be allowed to have an abortion in that case. Um, you know, that that should always be allowed or what have you. Not here in um, Wisconsin. Right. The, yeah, only, the people... only abortion is a felony in this state. The only reason a person can get an abortion um, is if their life um, is is, you know, if, if they're at risk of dying, not if they're at risk of incredible complications or incredible strain or harm, but if there is the ability to say that if this person doesn't have an abortion, they'll die. Um, so rape is not an exception. Yeah, people people really don't realize that, number one, it is a slippery slope. Like, you know, we got to Roe. Um, we got to Roe being overturned, and that's no longer a guarantee. Um, we have states where that's not a guarantee anymore. Um, and number two, um, even if it's a guarantee, um, who's to make that determination? How do we get that determination to be made? How do we guarantee that it's even um, a possibility? Um, so it's not it's not that easy. Um, and so I think in in the conversation, people need to understand that making it easier to have access to that sort of health care to have abortion access makes it easier for survivors to make decisions for themselves. Um, and so that's sort of where we're at with that. And to sort of piggyback um, everything that Mayayan was saying before was absolutely correct. Um, and all of the sort of harrowings of the past where we still have Buck v. Bell um, on, on the record can you um, explain what Buck overturned. v. Bell, Bell yes. is, please? Yes, Thank you. I can, and I will. I am happy to do it. So um, Buck v. Bell um, was a Supreme Court decision uh, back from the eugenics era, um, and the Supreme Court um, basically upheld the constitutionality of a Virginia law that allowed for um, compulsory sterilization of folks who had intellectual disabilities. Um, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, one of the justices, um, wrote in that opinion 
Um, it is better for all the world if society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. I mean, that's that's still on the record. And those kinds of things, that's you hear those kinds of things and you hear that kind of paternalism um, and sexism um, from from you know guardians from conservators from those sorts of things um when talking about disabled folks when talking about people who can become pregnant um when talking about women so i i just want to sort of harrow back to that conversation because i think it's important i think that there's often this question of one are we being fair to the people who want to be parents or do not want to be parents and then simultaneously are we being fair to the kids right does every kid have the right to be born should a kid have to navigate having a parent who is disabled right like are we doing kids a favor um by by making sure that certain people can't can't be their parents uh i think talking about you know what what makes somebody fit to be a parent um is one of the more complicated parts of this conversation i think one of the initial things that makes somebody fit to be a parent is wanting to be a parent um i think one of the real things that's gonna get in the way of being a parent is absolutely not wanting to be a parent um so mayanan i think i want to ask you you know how do you how do you talk about about that within this context of what really makes somebody you know fit to be a parent prepared to be a parent how does that conversation exist with within a conversation about disability the reality is that there are millions of disabled parents in the U.S. and they're just as capable of being good, loving parents as non-disabled people are. Um, and again, some, some people might need supports to make sure that they're taking care of all their children's needs, but that just means that they should be getting those supports um, as, as part of their parenting. Um, but when disabled people do have children, they often have to deal with um, these very real threats to their parenthood, like the, the risk that the state is going to take their children away just because they're disabled, um, uh, in, in that, that they will lose their parenting rights. Um, so for people with certain disabilities, it sort of varies um, based on the disability, but for people with certain disabilities, the removal rate is as high as 80%. Um, in in two-thirds of the states, a court can actually declare parents to be unfit just because they're disabled. Mm. Uh, so... Um, so, so, so there um, doesn't parents, have to be any sign of neglect, no sign of abuse. Just this person has this diagnosis, and therefore, their rights to parent their their baby don't matter. Exactly, and I think we, we very often see child welfare agencies. Um, um, that um, you know, while while they do important work, they um, they um, they are they often have the, some of the same biases that exist in the rest of society, and very often disabled parents are targeted um, just because of this assumption that a disabled parent can't meet their child's needs, even when there's no evidence of neglect or abuse or anything like that. Mm. Thank you so much for, for speaking to that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. This is a public affair. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. And today we're talking about the intersection of reproductive justice and disability with Mayanan Anafi and Marissa Dekowski. Um, Y'all, we just have a little bit of time, and I think there's so much more we could talk about. But you are both folks who work from a, a legal perspective, right? Like, you're, you're both kind of engaged. You know, you're working with the national... Nas the 
the Council for Health and Equity and Health Equity and Justice at the National Women's Law Center. Um, you're, you know, a staff attorney based in Washington, D.C., who works with low income D.C. residents who are with disabilities who are facing debt. I think, you know, thinking about the the I guess the the reach of our laws right like how far should our laws be going and how far should should what is what is the reach of a law into a person's individual life i think you know how how are you all having this this conversation um from in in terms of that perspective like what what is the legal advice you're you're giving to folks around how to combat um the overturning of roe v wade or how to deal with it and I'll start with you, Marissa. Oof. Um, I feel like it's less legal advice and more, you know, sort of policy and um, how to move forward in that way. Um, it's, it's very hard legally to do much about it at this point. Um, the Supreme Court has made its decision. Um, that is the law of the land. Um, whether I agree with it or not is a different story. Um, and, you know, things need to be changed. Um, we need to take action, um, whether that means taking to the street, whether that means pushing um, with... Um, your state to make changes, whether that means pushing um, your congressional um, and uh, your congressional uh, representatives um, to make some sort of change. Um, that's sort of where we're at right now, um, because right now the law is not in our favor. Um, so that's where we're at. Um, there, there's no, there's no legal recourse right now for a lot of people. Um, and so the action is going to be um, with movement lawyering. It's mm -hmm. not going to be simply with let's sue. Mm. Thank you so much for speaking to that. Mayana Nafi, I want to ask you, you know, outlawing abortion means something for folks who experience miscarriage or experience multiple miscarriages in terms of now, instead of looking at a miscarriage as, you know, a really sensitive and private thing, um, I think folks have to be worried that they will be blamed for a miscarriage um, and that they could actually be punished for, for miscarrying. Uh, for folks who navigate medical, a medically complex reality in which miscarriage is more likely to occur, um, particularly within the disabled community, what what does that mean for folks who, who, you know, may want to have a kid, may have a really challenging time having a kid and may have a miscarriage or multiple miscarriages and could be blamed for those miscarriages um, and even penalized or, or criminalized for, for miscarrying within our, our current reality? How, how are you all talking about that? Um, what are you doing to prepare for kind of the eventuality of how miscarriage and, and abor abortion can be conflated? I think that's exactly right. And I think um, th that um, a lot of times um, 
You know, we're, we're already hearing stories about people who um, are experiencing miscarriages but are afraid to go to the hospital to get help because they're afraid that they're going to be criminalized, you know, or, or, or people um, who might um, need um, a, a, an abortion because in order to, you know, deal with a miscarriage, um, but they're not able to get it. Um, so. Um, I think that um, a, a lot of times people assume that sort of miscarriages are in a sort of a totally different bucket than abortion, but the reality is that a lot of these bans on abortion are affecting people who um, want to have a child but are miscarrying for a whole variety of reasons. This is Marissa. We're also seeing a lot of uh, folks who are women um, being unable to get medications that might be used um, to... Um, uh, compel or uh, have an abortion happen, um, medications that are really necessary to treat um, their medical conditions. And it's been a huge problem. Thank you so much for, for speaking to that, because I think so often um, we had a doctor on the show recently who said, I wish we didn't call it birth control. I wish we called it hormonal treatment because there are so many other things besides birth control um, that that these medications support people with. In, in the conversation about, you know, the, the right to contraceptive, um, you know, I think you, you alluded to it when you talked about, you know, Britney Spears struggling um, to, to have her IUD removed. How, how, how are, are folks with disabilities uniquely positioned in, in that conversation in terms of, you know, navigating contraceptive um, and navigating contraceptive in light of kind of other, other med- medical needs? Um, a lot of disabled people who can get pregnant um, face um, a, a lot of barriers to getting birth control, just like they face barriers to getting other health care and, and including to abortion. Um, and that, that can include, you know, things like um, um, uh um, medical professionals who who don't understand disabled people's needs or who assume that disabled people might not need birth control because they're not having sex um, just because they're disabled, even though obviously that's um, not true. Um, and um, it, it can include um, a, a lot of lack of research about the impacts of birth control and various types of birth control um, on disabled people and how it works with their various medical needs. Um, and so I think particularly now as, as we're seeing birth control being targeted in this, um, a- along with abortion, then um, these barriers are only going to increase for disabled people and other marginalized people. Thank you so much for speaking to that. Marissa, we have just uh, like a minute left. And so I want to make sure if folks are out there listening and they want to connect with your work um, and they want to support what you all are doing, that they know how to how to how to join the fight, how to support the work you're doing, how to be part of this conversation about the intersection of disability and reproductive justice. So, Marissa, can you let our, our listeners know here's how here's how you can follow up. Here's how you can get involved. Yeah, this is Marissa. So there have been a bunch of really great reports that were released recently, including, I think, uh, Mayayan was uh, one of the writers on, uh, from CAP, on guardianship and reproductive justice. Uh, that's the Center uh, for American Progress, uh, wrote that report. Um, the um, um, Autistic Self-Advocacy Network also just released a bunch of really important resources um, on reproductive justice um, and Roe. Um, so all of those great resources, go ahead and give them a follow on Twitter. Um, go ahead and uh, seek them out. 
um, but get involved. Um, call your call your state senators and um, call your congressional um, representatives. All of that. Oh, thank you so much for speaking to that, Marissa, and letting folks know how they get involved, Mayana. And I want to ask you the exact same question. How can folks continue to support your leadership, the work you're doing, and get involved in this conversation? I think one thing they can do is um, share some of this information, including the report on forced sterilization, because many people still don't know that this is happening. Um, I think one urgent thing as well is to support um, abortion funds um, to make sure that people who are struggling to um, get access to abortion, including disabled people who might be facing all sorts of barriers to abortion, um, can uh, get the um, can can get the abortions that they need. Um, so those are just a couple of things that people can do. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us here today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. We're going to continue the conversation about reproductive rights next week. So make sure you tune in.